Hello and welcome to episode 408 of the Crate and Crowbar gaming podcast being recorded on an exceptionally early date of the 22nd of October 2022. And it is early because it is occasioned by me, Marsh Davis, being joined, a rare appearance, by Tom Francis. <laughs> Hello. I've been built up too much already. <laughs> yeah, we are um, talking to you from a, a smoke-filled hellscape Um <laughs> that is Vancouver. It's actually it's not too bad today, but this week it's been absolutely choked with with smoke from fires down in in the US. I saw some pictures from Seattle, which made it look um, particularly beautiful. But apparently, everybody's having trouble yeah. breathing, so there is a cost to that beauty. Yeah, that there are stunning sunsets as everyone chokes on the dust. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we'd start this uh, with a little question uh, that's been going around the gaming community on Twitter. Tom, what is your take on the difference? if there is one, between wonkiness and jankiness? Yeah, I saw this too. I thought it was a really good question. And uh, I, I read the answers, so I, I can't tell if they shaped my opinion. But I think um, uh, this is more or less uh, word for word one of them, but it definitely fits my impression. I think wonky is something that's visibly wrong, and janky is something that works wrong, like it doesn't function correctly. So you have to sort of interact with something to find out that it's janky, whereas wonky can be seen at a glance. Ah, interesting. So I, I, I didn't look through all the answers. I saw um, uh, a couple of them, one of which I disagreed with, but I can't actually remember what I disagreed with it about. And Rob Yang provided a pictorial response uh, with a series of uh, circles. Well, one was a circle. The circle was a baseline. Then wonky was like a wobbly circle. And then janky was a shattered circle. Which yeah, I think... is this, um, I don't know if it's the same one that I saw, but the one I saw, it's um, it's from a like linguistics test where you're shown these two figures and you're asked to say which one is Bobo and which one is Kiki. And everyone says the spiky one is Kiki and the round one is Boba. I think it's Bobo, it might be something else, but a sort of very round sounding word. Oh, well, oh, oh, right. Okay, so I had seen that that picture as well. That wasn't his, but that was the thing. Maybe that was the thing he was responding ah, to. Okay. Anyway, but I, I think... My, my take on what I mean when I say wonky versus janky, as I have probably many times on this podcast, is that wonkiness is like a, uh, a, a problem with your intent in some way. Like you, you have the wrong idea with, if, if you've produced something <laughs> wonky, whereas janky, you might have the right idea. You've just done it really badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I think my, my division there, um, I... Don't, like I'm pretty confident in the janky side of it, but the wonky side, I wouldn't necessarily say something has to be just visually wrong to be wonky. Like you can have something that the way it works is a bit wonky, mm. um, so it's not a perfect dichotomy. But for janky, I think I don't think something can simply look janky. I suppose. No. Yeah. I suppose you could have a non-interactive thing that shows jankiness, like if it's uh, the camera's flying through the, the the space and different things are glitching in and out, that would be janky. But that's still a sort of interaction, or at least it sort of implies interaction. And it's a failure of interaction as well, right? In some way. Yeah. That game, um, Jalopy. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, that feels like it's about a janky thing. But I think the game itself is not janky. <laughs> right? right, yeah. It's about using a, a very temperamental and, and uh, messed up car. I was thinking maybe, uh, so or you could have a wonky mechanic in that, uh, uh, in a, you know, I don't know, deck building game or something like that, which is really poorly balanced. You could call that wonky. 
but it yeah. wouldn't be janky unless like when you place a card the card sort that's of like true. just vibrates and then flies through the screen or something like that you know yeah that's a good point yeah actually that's that's almost um yeah that runs contrary to my original statement because in that way something could something that's wonky could be visually fine um and just the the problem is is deeper in it just because it kind of means like one like asymmetrical sort of like something's out of out of balance um you know not aligned correctly and that's definitely true for balance and yeah like a janky card game that you know the card as you drag it to the way you're trying to play it it would keep glitching back into your hand and stuff like that i was watching uh a another jobs video he's the guy who streams slaver spire all the time i think just professionally um and uh is extremely good at it and it's it's kind of fascinating to watch uh, he's also like almost offensively chill <laughs> he's like so relaxed playing it that it, it's kind of irritating to me <laughs> he's like, uh, particularly because all of his fans are like um yelling stuff in the chat he's just obviously he's exposed to this all the time so he's i think extremely over it and so they're always saying this is fucking garbage and this is like terrible and what you're doing is awful or what you're doing is brilliant or fuck this and he's always like yeah hmm nah <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it I was, haven't watched was, any Slay the Spire, but it's not on like a high intensity game to play, is it? No, but people have really strong opinions. And this is actually what I was going to say is um, he's just playing a run as the Watcher, which is the fourth class they added um, on the highest difficulty. And he gets a really good deck together. It's kind of the dream deck where it just, it can generate after a fashion, like it's not reliable, but in a lot of situations, it can end up in an infinite loop where it can generate its own energy and card draw. And so you never have to end your turn. You can just win from there. Um but it's yeah, the stars have to align for you to get this, and um, I think it, it ends up being his fastest run ever. And so it's not something that happens to him very often. He plays this game like full time. Um, but the comments are all just like, "I can't fucking believe that the Watcher even got out of quality control. How do you ship some garbage like this?" <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, say, calm down. It's like, yes, in the right circumstances, it's it's more powerful than the other. Uh, the other classes and it has like some of the synergies are a bit more easy to get going than other, other classes but <laughs> they're acting like it's just like, this fucking disgrace piece of shit and this is like one of famously one of the best balance games ever made oh man do you get any kind of feedback like that about the games you've released we we're having an interesting thing with breach wizards actually where um uh so for our first test there are only two characters in your team um jen and zan zan is the navy seer and jen is a freelance witch and Jen's power is all about knockback and Zan is about supporting his team. And early feedback was that Jen was a lot more powerful and a lot, and it's kind of the, the player's favorite. Um, and then our latest test, there's another uh, character in there um, who I won't talk about, but um, still Jen is coming through as, the, as people think that she's very, very powerful. Um, and it's tricky because Zan's whole thing is he supports his team. And actually, the third wizard is also kind of a support class in some ways. That she has ways of setting up your team for success, and that's largely because we—that's one of our priorities when we build abilities—is we want your team to have to work together and cooperate. And it's more fun if you do two things to an enemy um, in the right order to to get a maximum benefit. Hmm. Um, but that makes people think or feel like, oh, Jen is the star of the show, and and the others are kind of useless because they set her up for success, and her success is even greater because they set her up for it so well. Oh yeah. Um, and every time we get that feedback, we buff the other characters a bit more. And I, I keep buffing Zan. He has one ability called False Prophet, which is he creates a copy of himself that runs out. And the basic idea of the ability is like someone's targeting you, you create an illusion that runs out and they shoot the illusion instead. And now their shot is wasted, so you're safe. Um, but the upgrades for it are like one of them 
the illusion can go out and use things. So it can go out and seal a, a door to block reinforcements, or it could pick up some intel for you, which would give you mana, um, which would, means it pays for itself. Um, and then another upgrade for it is that he will shoot before he expires. So he'll run out, he'll pick up the intel, then he'll shoot somebody, uh, and then he'll expire. And uh, there's another one where he's also tough. So he run out, he pick up the intel, he shoots somebody, and then he can also take a shot and potentially take two shots and, and waste two people's turns. Um, and then there's another perk for your basic shot that anytime a teammate shoots someone with their main attack, you also get a free shot on them. And that applies also for your false prophet. So your false prophet runs out, he seals a door, he shoots an enemy, he tanks two different shots to waste their turns. And then because he shot an enemy, you also get a free shot on the enemy as well. <laughs> and it's like, I'm playing a game of chicken with the, the players. I'm like, are you still going to tell me that Zan is underpowered? <laughs> he virtually wins the game with this one ability. Well, that's, that's really interesting feedback. I, I guess I, I would never have really thought to compare the, like the power differential between each of the characters because I don't feel like I'm embodying the characters. I feel like I'm solving a puzzle with the yeah. character's abilities and the, and the game as I've played it in the, in the beta is all the levels were very good at teasing out specific combinations of those characters. So are they reacting to like how those characters work in like some sort of endless or free form generated no. levels or no, we don't have a mode like that in the, in the beta. Um, and it was intentional that we I structured the game so that we don't have to balance the classes against each other. They don't have to be equally viable because we decide who you bring on each mission. Um, yeah. And that was something that, um, uh, what's it called? The uh, ninja game from the Desperados 3 people. Um, oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> that one. Shadow Tactics. Yes. Um, yeah, I played that. And, and they they also dictate who you take on each mission and each, each person has different abilities and that really made me think oh this is fine like i don't i'm not sitting here wishing i could choose who to bring and if you do that then you don't have to make each class equally valuable um and the player also can't screw themselves by just not knowing what they're going to be facing and that kind of stuff hmm. um so we did that and yeah uh i i don't worry too much if people think one per person is more powerful than the other what i don't want is for them to only like one character if they're like oh i'm stuck with zan like he's not as good as the others then um right. that would be bad so we try and make it powerful enough that that you feel good using them and you're like, oh yeah, this this is a cool wizard. Um, <laughs> the ultimate reaction to any video game. <laughs> Should we talk about games that we've been playing that aren't our own games? Yeah, why not? What have you been playing? Um, I have played through all of It Takes Two with um, fellow podcast member Graham. Um, we, I thought of uh, suggesting we play this because way back in the day we played portal 2 cop in the office um and it was very funny to watch um owen and tim also play portal 2 cop and have a completely different dynamic where like graham and i are like sort of politely suggesting things to each other and having ideas and being like oh maybe you could do this oh we could do this oh yeah that worked and then like you get to hug at the end as robots and like yay team and then uh, tim was like yelling at owen and owen's yelling at tim it's like what the fuck are you doing why did you drop me you idiot <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah it made me think oh yeah graham and i have a good co-op dynamic we should play that that co-op game that everyone likes um and it's first of all it's fucking long i think it took us about 10 12 hours i was expecting to be sort of like six hours maybe at most um and it's about two it's about a couple yeah it took us 12 hours 
Um, it's about a couple who are about to get divorced and their kid is upset about it. And uh, in some weird magical moment, uh, she causes them to possess two dolls she's made of them. And so you play as the dolls and you are cooperating to sort of try and get out of whatever part of the house you find yourselves in um, and ultimately trying to get yourself out of doll form. Um, but of course, you don't know how to get yourself out of doll form because you don't really know how it happened. And so one of you just comes up with a theory that having her cry on you is going to be what cures you. <laughs> and he gets this from almost nowhere. There's the flimsiest of, of reasons to think that that could be a thing even worth trying. But then you just devote your lives to making your daughter cry, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> which is just extremely fucked up. And uh, it never feels <laughs> logical. It never feels like, yeah, we should try this. This does make sense. It always just feels like this completely vindictive, bizarre thing that the husband has made up. <laughs> and you just spend, it takes you, you know, six hours to to accomplish that goal <laughs> of making your daughter cry. So for all of those six hours, you're thinking, why are we doing this? What the fuck is the point of this? Like, why would we think this is going to work? And also, even if you thought it was going to work, I think you'd, you'd think twice about it more than they do. Um, <laughs> is it treated with like a, a sort of macabre humor or is it is it just accepted uh, yes. as a goal of the game? Right, okay. Yeah, they want you to find it funny, uh, especially as you're doing it. The moment that you do it is sort of very much played up. I won't spoil it any specifics but it's it's very much played up to sort of stress how how absurd this is um but that didn't land for me at all because i know it's fucking absurd i've been saying that from the start this is absolutely monstrous and i don't think it's going to work <laughs> and uh it's it's got a very weird vibe to it the story really didn't work for me um or graham i think um we were both there's this fucking book that <laughs> um a talking book it's like a book on love and um it speaks in a crazy foreign accent and it's it's all about love and it's just a very grating stereotype um and uh everything he says is just so overworded and overlong and just repeating the same stuff over and over again he just pops up every fucking 30 seconds and we didn't actually realize until halfway through that we could skip cutscenes, <laughs> and it became our rule that as soon as he's on screen we both put the skip button <laughs> and hold it down until he's gone again and if he pops up again we skip again <laughs> and if it's cutting without him we'll, we'll happily listen to it um <laughs> so i did miss in fairness after the halfway point i did start to miss some blocks we did start skipping everything we could with him in it um but it's supposed to be this emotional journey of, of like through being shrunk and and I don't know, it, like reconnecting with your passions, they're supposed to sort of repair their relationship and realize they shouldn't get divorced. Um, that's sort of clear from the start. Um, and what's weird is the daughter just doesn't really factor into it. Like there's one section where you're going through her sort of playroom, but even that, it's like a castle that her husband built with her. So it's kind of more about him and, and her appreciating him for spending time with her. And the daughter's like character and personality just doesn't really uh, factor into it. And they're determined to make a cry. <laughs> and I just feel like a couple on the brink of breaking up, like surely one of the key reasons to stay together is the daughter. Like <laughs> that would be the, yes, the focus of it. being cruel to your daughter. That's the reason to stay together. <laughs> and all of the stuff that does bring them together, I'm just going get, to get it out of my system on the plot and then I'll actually talk about <laughs> what it's like to play, um, <laughs> is about um, all their passions. And it's just like, oh, you know, you used to love music and you used to love gardening and you used to be really into this. Why did we give it up? Because you had a kid. You had a kid who took up a lot of your time and... One of you's needing to work and one of you's needing to look after her. And that takes up time. And there's no getting around that. And just realizing that, oh, I used to love music and I used to love gardening. doesn't fix anything. You're still in the same situation. You've still got to raise the kid. You're still going to have the same amount of time. You can't split it. There's, there's even like, they try and embody it in metaphors where like, oh, 
one of them will bitch to the other, like, I can't be in two places at once, you know? And then in the next section, I've got a thing that lets me be in two places at once, except it doesn't really, it's just a teleporter. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I suppose that, that fits the theme of I can't be in two places at once. So here's a mechanic that doesn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and there's lots of like flimsy things like that, but it doesn't help anything. There's no actual progress there. You've just you know, embodied a, a, a statement in a mechanic that then leads you back to where you started, which is you still can't, and that's still a problem. Um, anyway, <laughs> onto I'm, the game. I'm sort of unclear on what what is the mechanism by which they're gaining all these abilities. I mean, I mean you said it was magic that they yeah you know, possess these magic. <laughs> okay, is that uh, is there any just kind happens. of framing well, narrative no, actually, which explains that? It's the book, I guess. I think the book is doing it all to you. So that the, oh, you've come to life into dolls because of your daughter crying, and she's also given life to this book because she found that book in real life and thought it might bring her parents together. And I guess her her will for that to happen has has made the book into an annoying stereotype um <laughs> and then he is giving you the ability so i think that's i think that's the connection there where like you say can't be in two places at once and then he's like well here's a thing that does that but it doesn't um and yeah that's the each chapter they give you these new abilities and it's kind of especially considering that it's a 12-hour game it's wild how many of these they have for you how often they change them they just like give these to you then five minutes later throw them away and now you've got a whole set of new mechanics it's like one of the most lavish games i've ever played in terms of it just feels like money was no object to them and they just want any stray idea they had they just built it completely fully formed and um quite slickly like quite well most of them wouldn't hold up a game by themselves but almost all of them kind of feel pretty good to control um, there's a couple that are sort of awkward, but sometimes it's kind of intentionally awkward. Like it's a little bit fun if if it's hard to control the thing and you're trying to collaborate on that. You know, there's one where you're on a raft and you can both propel the raft in any direction you like. And so if you're fighting each other on that, then you're going to get nowhere. And if you if you agree, that might be just as bad because now you, you're assuming you'll only go as far as, as your thrust would take you, but actually it's going to go twice as far. Um, and basically that's, that's the fun of it is um, uh, in any co-op, puzzle platformer um there's always that fun dynamic of you see what the puzzle is one of you has to do something to help the other one and while you're helping them their life is in your hands and you've got to be holding this while they're on the platform and if you let go too soon they're going to fall to their death and if you hold it too long you won't have the next platform for them and they'll jump into the abyss and if you could coordinate perfectly maybe even if you're in the same room it might be um just too straightforward and it would just work and it wouldn't be fun but all of the fun is in like oh fuck sorry i didn't mean to drop you oh no shit sorry oh fuck <laughs> like <laughs> it's it's that it's almost like a, a magic trick where it makes you feel guilty even though nothing was really your fault like you sort of you did your best and you're always worried your partner is going to think that you intentionally screwed them or you were being careless or you you always feel like you need to apologize but actually uh, you both know that nope that's the point of the game <laughs> the game is making this intentionally difficult and there's always going to be a bit of lag in like i see what's happening I uh, think about what needs to happen in response. I tell it to you, you hear it, you decide what to do in response. And that feedback loop is, you know, maybe it's 0.2 seconds or something, but it's still enough that you, you keep fucking things up. And what It Takes Two does is just reformat that over and over and over again. Into There must be like over a hundred different mechanics. Like there's, it just relentlessly Man. changes into new things. And some of them um, are pretty cool. I think... My favorite might just be the magnets, which is a weird one because most of the time it's very asymmetrical. One of you gets one power and the other one gets a completely different power and you have to figure out how to use them together. Um, and the magnets is not, you both just have a magnet and they're different polarities. And so all the red stuff uh, will be pulled towards me and all the blue stuff I can push away. 
And for Graham, all the blue stuff will be pulled towards him and all the red stuff he's got to push away. And so it's just a question of inverting which you do. But there's just a lot of fun stuff with like your skiing and there's magnets that you can kind of slingshot through um, and figuring out each puzzle. Uh, it was just fun to figure out, okay, there's this thing here. Do we need to push or pull it? Because if we need to push it, then I should do it. And if you pull it, then you should do it. And that stacked on top of also, while I do that, what opportunity does that open for you? And there's all this, um, one of its basic puzzle structures is like, one of you does something that sets it up for the other one to get across a gap or some obstacle. And then after they've done that, how does the other one get across? And often there's a sort of a different puzzle the other side for that person to solve alone that then sets you up to get across or uh, stuff like that. But then there's some sections like a very asymmetrical where I think I almost, I might be giving it too much credit, but I think this might be intentional that when you do the gardening section, which is the husband's passion, the ability the husband gets is fucking insane, <laughs> which is he can possess any plant or maybe he sort of, maybe he, he grows into any plant. So anytime you find like a, a flower bed with sort of a, a seed marker on it, you can just jump into the soil and be born again as that plant. <laughs> and okay. every, every plant type has its own mechanics. So like if you become a cactus, you're like a Gatling gun turret. And if you become like a daisy, you can snake your stem through a, a place and your leaves are moving platforms for the other player. And there's like, in the boss fight, you get to become like a tomato or a potato and stuff. And there's just so much to that. And then in that same section, your wife gets a watering can and I think a, like a, a trowel. And the trowel, you can just hit stuff with it. And the watering can, you can just put some water in some places that you're supposed to put water. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, but then, and then in the music section, um, the wife can sing um, and blast out a kind of wave of noise and her singing like everything is coded to her singing basically the whole section is kind of about her and the husband gets a symbol <laughs> and it's just you can throw it at stuff <laughs> and that's about it and i think that's intentional because the music is the wife's passion and gardening is the husband's passion so i think they maybe sort of went bigger on those things which is almost does that, interesting does that feel bad though to play it does a bit yeah in the gardening section i i, I kind of feel like the game should do this for you or suggest to do this uh, Graham and I decided, like, should we just swap sometimes who's playing who? Because you, the game never does that. Like, you you get a cool ability, the other one gets a less cool ability, you play through the whole section, and then both abilities are gone forever. And so one of you never gets to play as the cool ability. And mm. sometimes there are little chains of it where, like, the, like, there's a lot of kind of driver and gunner sections where one of you's steering something, the other one's shooting. And as the wife, I was just always shooting, and he was always driving, or I think it was that way around. And that was true for like three sections in a row. And it's don't you want to mix it up a little bit just so the players are doing something different? And mm -hmm. yeah, in the in the um, gardening section, we did switch over halfway through, but it's hard to do that. Uh, you know, it lets you do that, and it's, it's got support for that. Uh, if you just you'll restart at the last checkpoint, and you just change who's playing who. But of course, you don't know how long the section's going to be, so you don't know what the halfway mark is, and so you could leave it too late, and the other person doesn't get to play it. I think in the gardening thing, we probably did it too early, and I got too much of the fun stuff as the husband. Um, but yeah, it feels weird. It feels like as players, you're trying to solve a problem the game has created of, of just having mm. an asymmetry and how fun the different characters are at different times. It seems like that would, you know, that uh, reveals a learning experience for the characters, but it's not something that the players need to learn because they're already cooperating. That's the entire point of the <laughs> <Yeah>. playing game. <laughs> yeah, that's the, other th that's the other part of it that undermines any sense of an arc is like, right from the start and all the way to the end, we are equally good at cooperating. <laughs> we, are, we already know we need to work together and we work together a lot. And sure, that's like a bonding experience for anybody, but it doesn't, at the end of it, that hasn't changed anything about their relationship. So have you, have you and Graham renewed your vows? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like we've grown closer as friends, yeah. Oh. <laughs>
Um, Maybe the way yeah, to solve just... that would have been to to uh, hang a, a you know put a spotlight on the the malfunctioning aspect of their relationship, which means that one person has more yeah. to do, and then actually have the characters work to resolve that by uh, giving the character who has less to do something to do, which is as valuable, uh, and explicitly work through that. Yeah, but... that would be actually um, a fun way to get. The narrative into the mechanics of like make a section where one player has a really interesting ability the other one has basically fuck all <laughs> and just like that goes along for a while and maybe it's the husband and he's really enjoying having the cool ability and then the wife starts to complain about it and then you as players decide when to hand off and you'd have to decide amongst mm. yourselves of like how much how do we distribute this uh, this imbalance how do we solve you know this actual problem um yeah that could be cool and it feels like in their wheelhouse as well because actually another thing I, I forgot about is there's a bunch of mini games there's dozens of mini games i think we we played every one we found and they're all competitive they're all you know, there's like a whack-a-mole one this is kind of cool actually like in the section where one of you has a hammer and the other one has a nail um you're, you're tiny so it's a, the nail is like a javelin and that hammer is enormous um there's a, one of the mini games is whack-a-mole so the one who has the nail pops up their head and the other one has to hit them with a hammer and it's just a reactions thing um and so there are all these adversarial mini games um, in which you are scored and you're told who won it. Um, and again, that would be kind of an interesting thing to work into the narrative of like, that is contrary to the co-op thing. And the co-op thing didn't have an arc because we're just cooperating from start to finish. But what if the competitive mini games, like loads of emphasis is put on them early on of who's better and who's winning and who's getting the more points and, and like sort of getting more credit in the relationship. And by the end, like those could trail off and the mini games that you play start to become ones that are that you can't do well at if you're selfish and you have to collaborate to get points. That would have been a really nice little arc to take us on. And it's all of that feels in the wheelhouse of the people who made Brothers. Uh, yeah. Brothers of Tale of Two Sons has, you know, the one of the best uh, embodiments of a narrative beat in mechanics in, in all of gaming. And I won't say what it is because it's a, a major spoiler for that game, but if you haven't played it, do. And this never really has that. You know, it doesn't, it's it's a bunch of, mechanics some of which are cool and a story which i don't really like <laughs> but um it is it's a really fun time it's just a, a bunch of fun co-op mechanics um there are some boss fights that are, are pretty frustrating because it just does a lot of them and they're all kind of the same they're all just like you're in an arena and bits of the arena start falling away so your safe zone is smaller and smaller but there are these timed attacks and these things that dash in from the side and it just repeats that formula again and again and again and i'm not really sure why hmm. what are you but, actually fighting um all sorts so it's very okay. themed this is another thing that feels incredibly lavish about it you're moving between these different areas and just everything is custom for those areas you know the, the enemies the your abilities the way you look you have unique equipment that you're wearing um the mechanics um and so yeah in the garden there was a lot of like corrupted plants and the there was a boss that was like a flower that the dad had mistreated or neglected in some way and she was angry at him for that and so he was rolling around as a as a personified tomato <laughs> trying to bump into some corrupted other plants so that she would like i think bend down with her head so that you could beat that up and weaken her in some way and then eventually like he possesses her and like tries to take over her mind and make her happy <laughs> with it which is just bizarre and, and weird um but yeah then in um in the garage there's uh the sort of boss of that is a is a neglected hoover i think there's like an old hoover and you've replaced it with a new hoover and it's angry with you for that and so it sucks at you with these these tubes and that's kind of like chasing you through the whole section and then you fight it at the end 
Um, and then like most of it is not combat. Most of it is um, puzzles. So it's just about how to get across this gap and how to use these mechanics to pull the right thing over here. Um, and there are hundreds of variations of there's effectively just a switch that one of you can use at range and the other one can't. And so they need to hit the switch so that the bridge goes down. <laughs> hmm. I will is say, that bad, um, though? I mean, do you, because... Not, not really. Um, it doesn't... It, I don't know. It, I was going to say it doesn't outstay its welcome, but it kind of does <laughs> in the sense that, like, I wish it wasn't 12 hours long. I wish it was, like, eight hours long because there's just so much of it and it doesn't really have... It has plenty of new mechanics sort of lowercase n new mechanics <laughs> like <laughs> this is this is technically different this is uh I, I can't claim this is identical to previous mechanic but they're all in a similar wheelhouse and um it doesn't feel like oh we couldn't possibly have have um cut this short we, we needed to explore all of these different things it, it actually often feels like it's kind of trying to extend its length it's very strange because for something that has and this is going to sound more negative than i mean it. it's not really a problem but it's just weird that um, it feels like it's trying to stretch the game out, even though it has hundreds of ideas, many of which would would I'd happily play with for longer than they give them to you. Um, but at the same time, the structure of each segment is always like you've got to get these three uh, three keys to unlock the cage, and you've got to unlock three different cages to light up this beacon, and you've got to light all three beacons to get the next letter fragment. And there's three letter fragments. <laughs> and it's just always, they are in love with this pattern of like, do these three things to get one of these, do three of those to get one of these. And that structure is actually very daunting and kind of tedious. It's always like, you just see it stretching out before you of like, oh God, we're only a third of the way to a third of the way to a third of the way of doing this. Hmm. Did you play the game, uh, they, the Haze Lights, the developers previously made? I think it was called A Way Out or something like that. It was like a prison no. break thing. No, I only played Brothers. Yeah, I love Brothers, but A Way Out sounded mad in maybe <laughs> not altogether good ways. <laughs> uh, but uh, it sounds like they've they've put something out which is like solid and polished, though, with this, which I think was a, yeah, one of the problems definitely. with The Way Out was that it was quite... Uh, maybe even janky or maybe wobbly <laughs> maybe both in fact maybe wonky um this yeah i i actually found myself wondering like was brothers a huge hit or was a way out a huge hit because how do they have this much money because this just feels like it costs hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> like it's just they did everything that's difficult to, to do in games and did all of it to quite a good standard and it looks great it's you know, really visually sumptuous um just seems like everything that's expensive they did um and i'm just curious like how do they have this much money because it's like i say it's lavish it's not just not just an expensive game to make but they sort of almost needlessly spent more money on it than they needed to like it doesn't need to be this long it doesn't need to have this many different mechanics it doesn't not everything needs to be this this huge custom set piece there are so many like you know wacky chases and everything's just built for this one three minute experience um and it just seems like they had money to burn for some reason. <laughs> it doesn't feel like a kind of game that would have a huge, huge audience. But um, oh, apparently Wikipedia says it had uh, sold more than 7 million copies um, wow. okay. by July of this year. So Yeah, it's got, yeah, it's got amazing reviews, reviews, actually. On Steam, it's got 96% positive reviews after 87,000 reviews. Uh, that is a mega hit. So this one made money, but I don't know if the other ones did. <laughs> um. I did want to also want to say that uh, if you played It Takes Two and you liked it, I really recommend a game called Biped, which is much oh, yeah. less well known. 
Um, but I played that through with a uh, friend of the pod, Mike Cook, um, who was in the IGF. And it's really good fun. It's a very similar thing where you are, each section has unique mechanics where the two of you cooperate. Um, but I think it's, it's highs are higher and um, it just doesn't have as, it's much shorter, it's much simpler, it's much, um, uh, it's much less game there in total. Um, but the, the section in that um, where you are linked by a rope is just so much fun. It's because uh, you are, you both play robots with, with uh, two feet, as the title implies, but those feet are in controlled individually. So I think on a controller, you're using like a thumbstick for each foot. And so even just walking is like push one thumbstick forward, then the other one, then the other one. Um, <laughs> and uh, it has a bit of a learning curve there. But then there's a section where you're both tied to the same rope. And uh, that means, you know, it's a problem in some ways because you can't get the rope past certain things. But also it means one of you, you can walk on walls in some situations. And so one of you can glue yourself to the wall and the other one uses you as a grappling hook to swing onto someone else and, and sticks there. And then you can swing from them. And uh, that is, is so much fun. And it's, it's, there's something, there are bits a bit like that in It Takes Two, but they're not um, like proper physics. They're kind of like pre-scripted, you know, you will create an anchor point here and you'll swing to there and, and that's more or less all you can do. Um, it doesn't feel physics-y in the way that biped is physics-y throughout. Everything is a physics puzzle and everything is very um, kind of rooted in that. And that makes some sections just really, really cool. Do you know who made biped? Next Studios. Oh, that's a really boring name. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit. <laughs> what have you been playing? I've been playing... If you just check the name of it, because I kept on saying it wrong. <laughs> the Case of the Golden Idol. I keep on referring oh, yeah. to it as the Curse of the Golden Idol, which actually makes more sense, really. Um, which is a Obra Dinner-like, an emerging mm. genre, um, in that it's an information game. There's been a bit of discussion online about how Obra Din should have spawned an entire genre, and it sort of is slowly. But I kind of, I, mean, I suppose it already was a genre in the sense that there's quite a broad base of uh, information games that includes like stuff like the Frogwares, Sherlock Holmes games, and even like Phoenix Wright, I suppose, which is sort of part mm. of visual novels as well. And then there are games that's where you use deduction to essentially just label stuff accurately, uh, <laughs> like strange horticulture. Yeah. But I suppose the kind of the intersection which Obradin occupies is one, you know, a game in which you essentially just label stuff accurately, but the stuff you're labeling is all at a murder scene. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It's actually quite hard to come up with another context in which you would need to solve, you know, 35 people's deaths simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All in the same place. I've got, I really like this, uh, this genre and uh, specifically just, uh, I mean, it's been sort of a go-to genre for me during the pandemic. I felt like it's been quite hard for me to get into a lot of games that are kind of more mechanically complicated or require some kind of uh, an amount of upfront learning. Uh, like really, and I'm, I'm setting the bar very low here, uh, like any kind of strategy game or anything of, of that ilk. Um, and so I've ended up kind of going for things that I already know how to do. So I've played quite a lot of retro first-person shooters because... I don't need to be told how to click on men's heads. I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> and then uh, with these games, though, like um, they are, there is there is a level of like intellectual challenge there, which is very gratifying. But actually, getting into it is super easy because I know how to look at things and understand the things. <laughs> um, and that's all there is to these games. But I find that uh, extremely pleasurable. Um, and in the case of the Golden Idol, you're uh, 
you are um you're labeling murder scenes essentially before the the, the body has even gone cold and uh, <laughs> I mean, in one case of human combustion while the corpse is still on fire uh, <laughs> it sort of charts uh, a large number of different murders that uh, re- relate to the possession of this idol, um, which has been stolen from uh, a distant land and brought back into a country which is very much like Britain in the 18th century. And it goes across a number of years as like various jealousies and conspiracies emerge from uh, the schemes of the original explorers to the schemes of like covetous nobles to esoteric cults escalating to like totalitarian political movements and, and as it does this it builds up this cast of characters uh who you know collaborate and variously betray each other in uh escalating and unpredictable ways and all of that is presented as a series of very slightly animated 2d pixel art scenes um each of which take place in the immediate aftermath of a murder. So there's, there's usually some form of like incredibly macabre chaos occurring. Um, it's sort of like jostling gently as it animates uh, between a few frames. And then you can kind of click about on this screen uh, as you would a point and click game. There are like highlighted points uh, to explore. And, you know, uh, when you click on a character, you'll glean little bits of information, like what the character is saying or thinking at that moment, what they have in their pockets, uh, what those things in their pockets might say. So they might have a ledger which has a list of names uh, or a torn letter or something like that. And maybe they have keys which you can recognize are the same keys that are going to be used to open a particular door based on somebody else's access to it. And as you gather this information, you begin to uh, like load up this frame at the bottom of the page with words. So when you look at a uh, like a, a ledger with a bunch of names on it, you can click on all those names and it just sort of slurps them down to this box <laughs> at the bottom. And then at any point, you can switch to a, a thinking mode, uh, which just is basically a different screen, uh, which provides... Uh, it's, it's sort of like assembled like a, a bunch of different heavily redacted sentences uh, that describe what happened. And you just drop words into the redacted sections that fit there. Uh, and often this this page, it's, it's different on, for each investigation because it's actually testing different things. It can be quite specific and context specific, which is quite nice. Um, but it, the, it's broken up into a bunch of subsections that test your understanding of different elements, uh, some of which may relate to the actual narrative of the crime and some might be tangential to it. Um, it's generally very cleverly balanced so that some of those sections overlap so you can confirm details before moving on to the bigger picture. And then there's, oh, you confirm it, by the way, because once you get all the words correct in one section, it sort of locks it in. It goes green and locks it in. Um, and there's and, and that also means that there's um, there's sort of a pressure to, to lock in some subsections early on, because as you get more and more words, the frame you have to store them in just gets packed and it becomes really difficult huh. to organize. And so when you lock in words in a subsection, it helpfully takes them out of that lower frame and it gives you a bit more space. And it's just, a, I mean, it's just been very well thought through in that, in that the, the, I mean, the complexity uh, of those mysteries has just the right amount of information to fit in that box. <laughs> and that box right. is just the right of informa- amount of information to present a really challenging level of complexity, which strains your memory, but not too much and has, you know, uh, red herrings, but not too many you know, to just attempt you down the wrong deductive path, but it never gets you into a total cul-de-sac. 
Do they have um, any guarding against like brute forcing? Can you just try every combination and wait till something clicks? You can, yes. Um, but I mean, it would be hard to do that. Most most of the, I mean, it's easy to do that if you have only one space left to fill yeah. in. Um, but you have to have done a certain amount of deductive reasoning to get to that point. And I didn't feel like I tried not to um, make any speculative entries. I think I, I think I made two speculative entries total during the course of the game. Hmm. Um, uh, and I think there was, I, I think there was probably ways of working out what those were definitively. Um, so you didn't need to sort of yeah. cheat by brute forcing. It. I got them both right. So, so <laughs> that's right. That sounds like a better tally than uh, Oberdin for me, at least. There was I definitely did more than two speculative things in Oberdin, and Oberdin also like because it verified them in batches. It it wasn't sort of split into segments in the way that it sounds like this might be, but um, mm. it was if you have five right, we'll confirm those five. And so if I had one that I was a hundred percent sure of, I wouldn't fill it in. I'd fill it in wrong, and then I'd wait till I have one that I'm not sure of. I'd fill that in, then go back and do the one that I'm. That I am sure of, and see if that the two click together. Uh, that might not be exactly right, but there was some kind of way of gaming it where you could use your certainty to to get information on things oh, you weren't certain yeah. of. I never thought about that because yeah, you're right. It does it in batches rather than any kind of like. Um, there's no relationship between the information that you're putting in that's correct. It just it's it's just when you've got five correct, it says well done. Yeah. Whereas here, it's all like all when it's it's split up into things which have a, like a contained and related meaning to each other. Um, so that, I, th- I think that's just a lot more satisfying because then you, yeah. can, you once you nail down part of like a part of the mystery, then the rest of it becomes much more easy to understand. Um, yeah, I think that's a good route for an, for an information game in general is to have do the kind of like um, Breath of the Wild format of like here's the tutorial island and and you can solve everything here and then you move on fully into the game and the information game equivalent of, of having like a self-contained puzzle that just like everything here will fit together and you'll know when you're done with this whole thing is seems like a good idea yeah i don't i think the the, the way they've done it is very um it's much more kind of shaped uh and directed than obradin like obradin is really just a, a big book uh of names and uh and horrible verbs <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. put them together um whereas this because it, it's structured as actual explanatory sentences like it's you know in the morning blank blank went to blank blank to blank blank right uh, and because it gives you that grammar it could be much more kind of specific and directing um I, so I, I imagine like people who are like purists about the labeling things accurately genre might feel that that's uh, a little too kind of um pointed but uh, i didn't feel cheated by it at all i felt it was it was yeah, there was still a, a great deal of puzzle to to work through um, is there like and, a an in narrative explanation for the for what's pre-written no and this is okay. in fact exactly what i was going to say next it's so interesting to me that it's done without a single bit of like interest in who you are as a player <laughs> there's no kind of diegetic reason for these scripts to be there for this in your investigation to be taking place the you know like Oberdin personifies you as like an it's an insurance agent right yeah investigating the deaths this game doesn't care at all doesn't give a fuck you're absolutely just the person at the controls of the ui <laughs> nothing else <laughs> and it, it, it's absolutely fine like it right it gets you straight into it as well like i, I expected there to be some tutorial but it's no you just you plop 
and you click on things and you figure out how it works. And it's just so unfussed uh, by the idea of even attempting to contextualize things. I really admire how successful it is <laughs> yeah. whilst being so cursory with that stuff. Um, yeah, that's. I think that was amazing. Like, it's almost like a you know little secrets to discover in game dev of like you don't need to bother with X. It turns out, <laughs> and yeah. I I always admired that in uh, Gone Home, like a thing I would never have thought to do. The whole game is about discovering what happened and and this this backstory with your sister. And how does the player get that information? Well, every now and then the sister's voice just just pipes up, just starts speaking. <laughs> like it's not you do find notes and you find all this stuff, but you don't find the note that is her speaking to you. She just speaks things from her diary to you at intervals, um, and there doesn't need to be any explanation for that. I didn't even think about it when I was playing it. It was only afterwards I thought, wait a minute, how was I hearing that? <laughs> Why was I hearing that? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's re it's really clever. I, I like it a lot. There were there was. Um... There was one weird instance where I don't know I don't know if the developers are native English speakers. Like certainly for the most part, I I wouldn't have detected it being otherwise. But there's just this one weird instance in which um, it refers to like age and years, but it refers to like age and years in a way which feels like the exact opposite way in which we in the in in the English speaking world conceive of how years are uh, are uh, relate to age in french you say someone has 20 years don't you like the direct translation of of i'm 20 years old in french is i have 20 years yeah it's like a conceptual difference like that where it's a it, you know what, what would it mean to to have additional years or to lose additional years what does that what does that mean um, and it meant the exact opposite mm. of what I would have thought it meant. Uh, so it's, yeah. uh, I wonder if that's a language thing. But um, that's the, literally yeah, the only could... example of something uh, janky uh, with the uh, the way that the mysteries are constructed. I actually love that. You, I could see it both ways for uh, losing five years. Does losing five years mean you got five years younger or you got five years older? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, the other thing to say about the game is that the, the way it looks is really remarkable. Like it is, It's got this incredibly... Uh, scratchy pixel art style. The caricature in this game um, is 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 perfect <laughs> to me. <laughs> like, I mean, awesome. um, as somebody who's drawing, uh, who's, who's writing in uh, uh, a role playing game set in the eighteenth, a grotesque version of the eighteenth century, and drawing lots of like incredibly grotesque characters in wigs and stockings, this is this is just like it could have been exactly out of my own sketchbook. It's just. <laughs> uh, it feels really, uh, it really, really struck a good chord with me. The artist just loves a big nose, um, as, well, as well they <laughs> might, because the nose is the window to the soul, as everybody says. And there's good, there's there's some music in it as well, which is uh, okay at times. But there's, um, <laughs> but it, the thing is, you're you're lingering on these scenes for like thirty minutes or something sometimes. And you know, there's there's one tune which begins as like a sort of a shantyish folk melody that gets slowly detuned as it goes along until it's just a horrible jangling bunch of discordant notes and it's just like i don't want to listen to that for 30 minutes you know so um mm. you can turn it off luckily i'll ask this a because i've forgotten and b because listeners might have forgotten what is it called again the case of the golden idol oh that is quite generic isn't it yeah yeah but i do recommend it i really want more of these uh, opera dinner likes as well like i mean I, I'd, I'd like to make one in fact i i previously planned to make uh, an opera dinner like you know in a very kind of um you know i started a google doc kind of kind of level of planning oh nice um 
but it was it was going to use like uh, characters from uh, Hieronymus Bosch paintings, uh, and uh, the, the <laughs> detective was going to be this little demon guy who I love, who's this little bird goblin in a helmet who has a, a severed foot dangling from his hat. Um, <laughs> it's going to be called Detective Bird Thing and the Murder in Hell. But then Paradise Killer, <laughs> but then Paradise Killer came out, and uh, I felt a bit pipped to the post for that sort of. <laughs> demonic murder mystery but maybe one day uh yeah i feel like that's that's such a strong visual identity i mean it's is i guess Hieronymus bosch is out of copyright right you could just use all this stuff <laughs> <laughs> he's very dead tom yes <laughs> yeah you don't really like it's weird you don't think about it like um for sort of classic art the idea that you could just use it in a video game and just have that be the art assets <laughs> yeah what was that there was a guy who was doing that wasn't it kind of like procession to calvary yeah i haven't played any of those but yeah I guess like familiar with the Monty Python mm. um, uh, approach to it, but yeah, something that's sort of like that isn't parody that sort of honors the original art and sort of is consistent is an interesting idea. Oh yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure it, it would. Horonus uh, <laughs> Bosch would approve of what I was doing to with the Detective Birds thing, but we'll see. Of course, um, uh, his very name is is. Uh, also after copyright because it is used by the series Bosch in which the lead detective is literally called Hieronymus <laughs> Bosch. <laughs> it's not just the surname, he's called Hieronymus what? Bosch. What? I think I watched the first episode <laughs> yeah. of that. I didn't realise his first name was Hieronymus. Pe- people like... call him Harry, but but canonically his full name is Hieronymus <laughs> no Bosch. Way. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Have you been playing anything else, Tom? I have. Thank you for asking. Um, I've been playing... I was a teenage exocolonist, mm. uh, which is um, by Northway Games. Um, and I've been interested in this ever since uh, I heard the title, because I really like that title. Um, it's a... I'll read the, the blurb. Uh, Spend your teenage years on an alien planet in this narrative RPG with card-based battles. Uh, so basically, you're a... Uh, in a colony on, on an alien world that is not super friendly to um, to human life and you are I think you're like 12 when the game starts something like that and you s- decide how to spend your months whether you're going to you know go to class and study biology or work in the gardens and improve your toughness or help out at the military barracks and, and uh, develop some combat abilities there's loads of different options like that and um, as you once you decide how to spend your month, you then play a little card game to sort of decide how well it goes. And the card game is a bit like making poker hands, um, where you, you know, having a pair is, is all right. Having a straight is very good. Um, and having a straight flush is great. But actually, instead of in a poker hand, like the best thing you have is the score of your hand. You know, if you have a, a straight, it doesn't matter if you also have a pair. Actually, it does because that's a full house. But um, uh if uh, there are some situations in which you, know, you might qualify for two different ways of looking at your hand, but you only get the highest one. And in this game, everything that you, every way you could score your hand, uh, you get the points for that. So if you, um, if you have a straight flush, uh, that would be, you get like 10 points for having all of the same kind and you get 10 points for having a straight that goes through your whole hand. Um, but you could equally have you know, a three of a kind in which the third one is the start of a straight, and you also get full points for that straight, uh, even if it's not the same suit. And so basically, it's a way you, where you, as you sort of play these hands, you're just trying to figure out, you know, the the cards that you have to play. Um, I guess the the term hand is actually a bit misleading because the the thing on the table 
and there's there's the ones you're actually holding and you decide to play cards from your hand to the table and it's what's on the table is is the score you get um and so you're looking at the cards in your hand which might only be sort of seven and you've got to play five of them so there's you're going to play most of them um and it's a question of which ones you play and also in which order because you decide where they go in the in the hand and that will either you know sometimes it's worth breaking a straight to get three of a kind somewhere else and there's the way those interact and tessellate is, is kind of interesting um and it's it's a really well judged card game because it's just interesting enough because this is a narrative game primarily and they don't want it to be about gameplay um uh, they don't want you to sort of like fail the story because you fucked up one of these hands or you, you weren't smart enough to to do the optimal thing and in fact you can tone down the difficulty of, of these things or tone it up but I, i've just left it on the default and i found that really good um because like if it was any simpler i probably just wouldn't care about it and it would just be you could sort of autoplay it um and if it was more complicated i mean actually if it was more complicated i would like it but it, <laughs> it probably wouldn't serve the um the type of game that they're trying to make which is more about developing your character than it is about trying to win you know um and the thing that was uh really impressed me about it is how sort of naturally and easily the mechanics tie into the story um where and it's it's just because all of the things you're doing all of these these months you're spending you are devoting it yes to a field of study or a, an occupation but that directly relates to a stat that you have and that determines what kind of person you're being you know i Early on, I, I tried to leave the compound and they said, oh, um, you can't go out here. And then there's two options of like, you can say, I'm tough enough. And to say that you need 20 toughness. And it, or you can say, I'm brave enough and you need 20 bravery for that. And I thought, uh, okay, I'll work on toughness. I'll go get a lot of toughness. And to do that, I need to work in the garden. So I just worked in the garden over and over again. Uh, and I got enough toughness to sneak out and then go out into the wilds. And uh, that kind of put me on a path that I kind of lent into because toughness, is going to give you red cards and uh in a toughness challenge red cards might count for one more that might be like a, a special trait one of the the red cards you get is that it just counts for more in toughness challenges and also because you get more points for matching things that match in color oh yeah when you get a pair a pair can either be the same color or it can be the same number um or both um and uh that's you know uh, you can work it in different ways, but having your entire deck be red actually is a pretty good thing because then you've always got a pair going through your whole hand. Um, you know, um, mm. I, I don't know what the term for it is, but but just a, a series of cards that are all the same color of more than two. Um, and so you're sort of pushed to to over specialize. Um, it's hard to actually do that because you can't. You start with a very mixed deck, and every. Um, it's not every year. It's every time you rest, you get to remove a card from your deck. Your cards represent memories, and and you choose what to forget, <laughs> which is sometimes um, sometimes it's appropriate. You know, that some of your early cards are like um, I don't know, like crying in the crash, and that'll be like a zero point card <laughs> that's blue. Uh, um, I think in, a, in an early narrative event, there was something terrible going on. I was a kid, and I I, I think I hid in the crash, maybe. And hiding in the crash is a one-point card that I have in my deck, and it sucks. And it does, it's not red, so it doesn't synergize with anything else. And uh, as soon as I got the opportunity to forget that, you, you get offered a choice of like two cards, and you choose one to forget if you want to forget either of them. And so as soon as I got a chance to forget that, I did. Um, and yeah, you can try and tailor your deck to, to all be one thing. But then if you get like a science challenge, you know all of those bonuses for toughness are not going to apply. 
and you might wish you had some science cards. But like, so as far as I've played, I haven't really been punished for over-specializing my deck. Having a, just a shitload of toughness cards is pretty good. And it also kind of determined who I was and what I was good at and what, as you get more toughness, you start to unlock new um, challenges. As I went into, out into the world, because I was tough enough to, to do that, there are loads of ch challenges that I passed because even if it wasn't necessarily a toughness challenge, I can still play the toughness cards. My toughness cards are really good um, and I get through it. And I, a lot of the encounters out there are with alien life forms. And um, if you handle those well, then you get some points in animals. And I, that just naturally kind of pushed me towards the, the way I wanted to make the narrative choices as I encountered these animals was generally the sort of the gentler option of like, um, let's try and you know coax it out of the way rather than fighting it. And it just very naturally evolved into my character being sort of a gentle giant. Like I'm just extremely tough, but I'm very nice to animals. And I got interested in like, I want to be better with animals because actually there's some things I can't do. There's some options I can't choose because I don't have a high enough animal score. Mm. So now back at base, I've unlocked the ability to like, I've, I've captured some animals and we brought them back to, to like a pen and I can work with them now as one of the things I can do for a month and that will level up my animal skill. And yeah, there's a really nice flow between like the, the tasks you want to be able to do uh, grinding stats to get that and then that reflecting on your character and determining what you do around around the house around around the base and who you are in the society like every i think every year there's like a big celebration um that involves various events and you can choose to uh there's like a talent contest i think and then one of them is like wrestle a fucking robot <laughs> and I'm like I'm, I'm all toughness let me wrestle a fucking robot and i always fucking beat the robot i always come first in that challenge and i get uh, every time you do that you get a toughness card that's quite a high value and it's just, you know, defeated the robot. And so like the memory of doing it, the experience of having done that is a card in your deck that you, will then help you in future toughness challenges. Um, and so I've got like six of those at this point because <laughs> it's what I do every year. Do you get, sorry, do you um, get rewarded with cards for passing challenges or do you get the cards dependent on how many points you've got in, in toughness, say? Um, you get them for passing challenges. Right. And sometimes... Yeah, I think most of them actually are, are sort of unique to the challenge or, or tailored to it. So if it's a narrative event that's sort of important, it will literally be a very specific card that like mentions a character. I got a card for, um, uh, there's a sort of like, <laughs> the only problem with being the outdoorsy type is that the other character who goes outdoors is this mopey little shit who I don't like. <laughs> and so I keep getting more friendship points with him because I'm doing the kind of things that, that he's into. Um, I don't really care. And he told me a secret once. I, I don't remember what it was, but I got a card that's like, <laughs> this guy's secret. And that's like this memory in my deck. And uh, as soon as I got the chance to forget it, to get it out of my deck, I did. <laughs> it was actually, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the worst card, but it was just not, didn't fit my specialty. And uh, I was like, yeah, I, I don't remember what his secret was. He told me something. <laughs> it's gone now. Um, Does that ever come yeah, back to haunt you in a narrative way, forgetting things? Um, no, not so far. Uh, but actually, you don't necessarily know what the cost of your decisions is because um, uh, I won't give any specifics, but a, a major character died in a way that I thought was actually very well well handled in that I thought the plot was going a different way and and leading towards character X's death and then character Y suddenly died and it really hit me like oh fuck I wasn't even thinking about that I was so worried about this other thing and at the first I thought that was like a, a good narrative beat and then I learned none of that is scripted that is all dependent on your decisions holy it, shit like that character yeah. both those characters can survive or the other one can die or or whatever and it depends on how you built your character because you can help out the colony in different ways depending on what your skill sets are 
and some of those ways are going to affect people you you know hmm. um so i'm really impressed with how that played out that was one of the you know when you make something that as dynamic as this there's a risk that it might play out in a unadvantageous way but there's also the serendipity thing of like you know the thing i was admiring about the writing of this uh was not written and maybe even if sarah northway she's the lead developer on this um if she had pre-written the whole thing, she might not have thought to do that. You know, I wouldn't have thought to do that. I've sort of build up to one character's death, then suddenly kill a different character. Um, and so the the dynamicness of it sort of gave me that for free. Um, and actually, I don't know. I mean, the game never told me it was down to my decisions. I had to find that out outside of the game. Um, and I wonder if knowing that going in, if it would have felt different, because I might have been like, oh, you didn't tell me, like, you know, I needed to level up this stat to save that character or whatever. I think that would be the wrong way to play the game. You know, that would be, mm. you're going to get less out of the game if you treat it that way. I was very role-playing and very just going with, you know, circumstance and chance had pushed me one direction and then I just lent into it and I'm this kind of character now. Um, and then I also found myself wanting to, like, pivot because um, there was, you're sort of encouraged to, like, have a relationship with someone, Um you know, you're role-playing a teenager and uh, they're going to have crushes and stuff. And the game's kind of pushing me, like I say, the people, not just the, the mopey kid, but the other activities I did as well, the sort of character associated with them was like someone I sort of liked as like a uh, a friend but didn't really see my character being into. Um, and there was a uh, a science nerd girl. Every few years, the art of the characters changes because they, they're growing up and they're, they're uh, becoming teenagers and then like young adults and so they, they are redrawn with like new clothes and new styles and everything and this is very true to life once we hit puberty and everyone like changed looks suddenly i had different feelings about different characters <laughs> i was like shit actually i think my character would be really into the science girl at this point but i've studied zero science i'm a fucking himbo i don't know what the hell i'm doing <laughs> and so suddenly i'm like showing up to biology class being like uh can you teach me the first thing about biology please <laughs> yeah it really uh, i haven't finished it yet um but um, yeah, I've been really impressed with how how organic it's felt in terms of how you develop a character and how that reflects in, in every side of it. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Did you play Signs of the Sojourner? Yeah, I did. Is that yeah, comparable? Because like that, that has a similar thing where it's it's quite cleverly yeah. using the cards at your disposal to to describe your character's potential interactions. Yeah. Sojourner's like best trick was was this um, concept that. You know, as you leave home and you go and meet other people, they influence you and they become part of your deck and you lose things, you lose cards from your deck that made sense to people back home. And then when you, because this, the structure of the game is that you eventually return home, um, when you return home, you have less in common with the people you left and it's harder to talk to them. And that was a really good, um, a really good, but very specific, um, you know, I, I don't want to say trick because it's not, it's not deceptive. It's just uh, a, a really clever um merging of narrative and mechanics this is much less specific than that i feel like it's not really about how you're talking to people the, the card things are not usually not conversations they're usually like physical challenges or mental challenges um so it doesn't have that that aspect of of commenting on how we communicate and how the people we've we know and that we spend time with change our way of talking um it's i think it's just more straightforward in the sense that like you know, you can imagine sort of a traditional RPG if it had a card game mechanic, probably points in the barbarian tree would be, you know, the brute force cards and points in the wizard tree would be mana cards and things. Mm. Uh, it's closer to that maybe. Um, but it is, yeah, these cards are specific memories. Um, I, I think, I don't know that the metaphor completely works for me 
just because I don't know that the memory of a success in a robot wrestling contest <laughs> makes you stronger. I think the experience of doing it might level you up a little bit, but it's not really like um, your success in one thing just automatically becomes success in future things. Um, but it, it still worked for me just because it was, they were much more about like just how you've chosen to develop your character and you've just chosen to go in for one thing in a big way. And there's a really obvious advantage to that. Like I say, the colors matching just does you a load of good in the points um, in the points department. Um, and that reflects back on you. And then when you do want to pivot it, you know, you go through this, a change as a character that might be difficult for your character narratively also is kind of difficult mechanically because now my deck is less red stuff. I've got a load of blue stuff from all this biology I've been studying. <laughs> and uh, it's a little bit harder to make these like absolutely uh, brilliant hands. And that's kind of the price I'm paying for trying to change who I am, hmm. which is a nice thing. To what end is all this happening? Is there like an overarching plot that's going to have a culmination or do you just get older <laughs> and that's it? Um, it's It does a pretty good job of like, you don't, I mean, your goal when you start is just survive, just, you know, grow up, just, just live. Um, and as you go along, various um, events happen to the colony of, of varying degrees of severity. You know, there can be a minor thing of like, um, oh, there's, there's been a bad harvest and now we need more food. Um, or there can be a major thing of like, oh, we've lost a really important piece of equipment and now we can't produce X. And, and so it's hmm. an emergency. And I've just got to a bit where sort of, uh, I won't say any specifics, but just the, the vibe very much changes and there's some new characters and, and um, you're, you're in a different feeling situation. I've had a few situations where it's a, it's been a problem that I'm so good at combat. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm incredibly tough. I've got great combat, great animal handling. Um, I've got a bunch of like perks that all tie into that. And there'll be like a massive fucking thing is attacking the base. And I'm like, well, I can't not kill it. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure however big you say this thing is, I think I'm going to win because I'm playing on normal difficulty. I'm, uh, I think I'm like all right at the card game. I think there's some subtleties that I don't have internalized yet, but my deck is so specialized. It's so good at just this one thing. And I'm like, if you give me a combat challenge, I'm fucking winning it. <laughs> I don't care how hard it is. And I did that and I've been kind of chewed out for it because it was like, um, there was some like collateral damage to the fight. Uh, and I, I'm torn on how I feel about it. Cause it's sort of like, yeah, I, I don't think I should just always win and always always be rewarded for for being big violent person on the other hand like a massive creature attacking your 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 base and it seems like no one can stop it and i can i think i should fucking stop it i don't think i did the wrong thing <laughs> i feel like I, it was right for me to do that um and it's there's always this tension in, in all games that have these challenge things where you know if you're given three dialogue options and one of them requires science 60 and you have science 60 you always think like i should choose that because other people can't have that, and I can. It must be better than the other ones, even if the narrative suggests that one of the others might be better. And I, I was trying to gauge that with with and colonists of like, you know, is this the game where I should actually make it, you know, choose with my heart and not with my skill set? Um, and there was an early one where I did that, and it really backfired. Like there was a combat challenge I could have done that I had the the stats to do but it didn't seem right to me. And I chose the gentler option and I got really stung for it. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, fuck this then. I was just, anytime I qualify for the harder thing, I'll do the harder thing. Uh, I think I got stung by that as well. <laughs> so maybe it's not so simple. <laughs> Sounds really good. I like the way it looks as well. Yeah, yeah, I really recommend it. This has 97% positive reviews. Good Lord. 
overwhelmingly positive on uh, on Steam. Yeah. That's hard to get. You've been playing anything else? I played two minutes of Cultic. Uh, <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> based on the fact that you mentioned that you were going to play it, and I thought, do I have time to play this? And then for some reason, I thought I had time to play it two minutes before this podcast was going to start. <laughs> Obviously, that was foolish. But um, uh, yeah, I, like I said, I've played quite a lot of these uh, retro shooters at the moment, just because they, they feel very simple. <laughs> Uh, but I could not say that I, I learned much about this game in two minutes of it. Yeah. Did you play Blood back in the day? Not really, no. That was one of the ones that I wasn't so into. I was really into Blood. It was, that was my favourite of that generation. Oh. Um, and uh, it was... My, my whole thing, especially early in my, my game playing sort of life, um, I was just really into like the feel of weapons and especially like I wanted everything to have major consequences and I didn't like any game where shooting a guy a bunch of times didn't kill them and so immediate <laughs> violent death was was my thing and blood like on the level one you pick up some dynamite and you can throw out a bunch of cultists and it just kills all six of them in this bloody mess <laughs> and it was like fuck yes this is the game for me <laughs> I think like the first weapon's a flare gun which also just kills a cultist in one shot um shotguns do as well it's just like very um I'm not quite sure what the word is. I guess volatile. Like everything does a lot of damage. They do a lot of damage to you as well, so it's not easy. Uh, just everything has consequence. Everything has immediate gratifying effect. And also you have this kind of like um, uh, sort of cheesy gothic horror. It's very like, it's kind of like the game of e Evil Dead. It's just, um, uh, it is a horror thing, but it's also got its tongue in its cheek and it's um, silly about it. Um, and yeah, Cultic is, is very much riffing off that. Uh, they've modernized it to to some extent um where like headshots are a thing now which i'm pretty sure were not in blood because you, you couldn't even really didn't really have free aim mm -hmm. you know build engine games you were you're playing on keyboard for the most part um and if you had free look you didn't want it because <laughs> the perspective would fuck up as you looked up and down so um headshots were not a thing in those days and here they are and it does it really fits the game um uh in the sense that you know that was always the bloodthirsty kind of high high consequence uh, attitude it had to combat um mowing down cultists and, and sort of the combat's like reasonably satisfying but i i don't think i have any lasting interest in that i think if they made a perfect blood remake it wouldn't really be my thing these days because it's just violence and <laughs> nothing else um but the thing i really that this did capture about blood that i do kind of miss um is the level design and the sort of the the way they made spaces back then, and it's very much a kind of niche thing. Um, in in the same way that people sort of idolise the the PS one era now of of graphics and and of environments where lots of compromises were being made, and that gave it its own aesthetic in a very particular way. Uh, build engine games, I don't think they all had this, but Blood was very. Uh, much more so than Duke Nukem. It was interested in kind of natural environments as well. There would be a lot of haunted houses on a hill, but you'd also get to walk around the hill and, and go in caves underneath it. And there are a lot of underground caverns and cults and stuff. Um, and Cultic also has a lot of outdoor areas uh, sort of hewn from the same stone as build engine games. I, I, I'm sure they're not working with the same limits, but it's almost as if they are where they've sort of, they're very chunky. They have these stone walls either side of them as if you're in a canyon. Um, which is, you know, just a kind of limitation of the spaces. And there's something about those spaces that I find really compelling and just they, they feel very evocative in a way that I think they're actually evoking not what they intend to, you know, because back in the day, working with these limitations, 
they were trying to give the, the feeling of a wide open area and, and the illusion of outdoors, you know, that, um, that was kind of a novelty, like doom, I guess it had sky boxes in some levels, but there was never really a sense of you being outside in any yeah. major way. It was a trick of the, the sky. I mean, I guess to, to start at the right place, Wolfenstein literally didn't have any, any outside mm. because it was entirely self-contained. And then, uh, yeah, blood was, was just a bit more interested in that kind of outside stuff and, and trying to give the illusion of it and working with the limitations, which meant they had to contain it within a weird Canyon it had to be all kind of things could be, jagged but they couldn't really be smooth um and so you couldn't really do a cave in, in the way that a cave would actually look but that had its own aesthetic to it and cultic kind of hues pretty close to that and yeah i was surprised how much that that really i guess it sparked mostly no- nostalgia mm. i really enjoy being in those spaces and just found them exciting to explore are you going to carry on um i finished the demo probably won't get the full thing <laughs> i just the the gameplay itself just wasn't really doing it for me there's there's like a bit where you uh run from a guy with a chainsaw through a bunch of zombies and stuff and it started to feel very traditional horror in a way that i wasn't really um into and i think maybe like it does have dynamite in it but i don't think it has quite the same nutty attitude to weapons that blood had like i think dynamite is sort of it's sort of a, like on the grenade key the way it would be in like halo or something uh, whereas in blood it was literally just a weapon i'm just holding some dynamite and when i throw it, it fucking blows up immediately um in my face often and it was just so volatile and so wild uh, i think that was like once you master it you also uh, i think it's pro- yeah in cultic this is true as well but you have to turn on auto run in the options yeah in blood and in those days you would just move so fucking fast in these games and so there was it had nothing to do with walking or running it was just like you are a motorbike with dynamite on you (laughs) and you're just like trying to dance around those arenas and throw these wildly powerful explosives in such a way that they killed everyone else but not you was its own kind of art form i'm not really getting that from cultic it seems much more about shooting people in the head very carefully um and that's you know kind of satisfying but not really enough to buy the rest Mm. Yeah, I played, I think I I played, the thing that scratched my, uh, oh, I want uh, gore and explosions itch when I was a teenager was the R- Rise of the Triad. Oh yeah, that was good too. Yeah, or was it? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that was very, um, much more limited in, in its kind of the the expression of its levels. Like you say, like, well, Duke Nukem and then Blood were going for these, you know, as naturalistic environments as they could with uh, the limitations they had. Whereas Rise of the Triad was very much from the kind of the Wolfenstein mold of here are a bunch of fascists and they just happen to be hanging out in this giant chamber full of <laughs> rotating spikes, which they walk into. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, this is not a very well-designed enemy base. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I do remember yeah, like eyeballs fly at the screen and stuff like that when you give people. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what I was after, age 11, <laughs> whatever it was. I think it was probably deeply problematic. Um, mm. The thing I remember from it is there was a um, weapon called the drunk missile. Yeah. Um, they sort of like spiraled around. And to this day, I still use that phrase to describe, you know, any projectile that's moving in a kind of haphazard way. And I don't know if it actually exists outside of Rise of the Triad, whether it's a military term or whether they made it up. <laughs> I've been using it for the last 30 years or something. <laughs> Isn't there a remake happening? Yeah, I think. Didn't it already happen? Maybe it's know. already happened. Um I thought there was something yeah, recently because there's, there's definitely been um, there was a there was a remake in 2013, but I don't. I have a feeling that there was a more recent, uh, a supposedly kind of uh, more authentic remake. I'm not sure actually. Um, 
Rise of the Triad Ludicrous yeah. Edition has been revealed by a New Blood Interactive. Uh, oh wow, are, a month ago. Who are, yeah, who are behind a lot of these retro shooters. I'm very skeptical of of you know remakes and revisiting the stuff. I think most of the time it just reveals that oh yeah, this doesn't hold up. <laughs> and there's also like actual remakes that just seems to be like a a season or a maybe like a um, whole era of catastrophic remakes there are so many remakes that come out now just like this is you know uglier than the original it runs worse (laughs) (laughs) and it's just like completely shot itself in the foot in this way that makes you think what why are people doing this like why like how how is there no quality control or if there is quality control how is it as hard as as they're making it look Mm. and if it is that hard why is anyone still trying to do it well there's that that uh, some controversy recently i think like um uh, there was a, an official Blade Runner remake that came out, which yeah. did, that, did that do something like it nixed the much better modded version, which um, or the sorry the um, the fan made version yeah. of it, which was able to run on modern platforms, and then the new version I think maybe was was it like um, good old games like took off the the mod version and replaced right. it with the the remake. Yeah, yeah, and I saw the screenshots of the comparison there, and it really was horrific. Hell, Ed that the sprites just clashed with the environment in a way they never did before. Mm. Yeah, it's baffling. Well, Ludicrous Edition appears to be uh, a sprite-based game. So the the remake that was in 2013 was uh, was not loyal to the original in that it was a, a, a polygonal game of uh, some, right. I don't know, mediocre quality, <laughs> apparently, one of the Steam reviews, whereas this is the actual Rise of the Triad made, again, a fresh, a new for um, modern platforms looks like garbage now <laughs> now that i'm uh, looking through the screens <laughs> did you uh, play redneck rampage i did yeah so yeah i got that on a cover disc era. i think from pc gamer actually yeah probably i might have done the same that was... i have fond memories of that but again probably <laughs> wouldn't probably. <laughs> probably wouldn't hold up yeah <sighs> i mean back then we were just happy to have anything weren't we <laughs> but it's violent and it's I mean, it's not surprising. Like, if you've exploring a three D world interactively was new, like that, <laughs> that was a thing that didn't always exist. And so, all of the ways you can do that were massively appealing to me. Like, oh, there's a game, there's a new game <laughs> that I can play. You can flush toilets. <laughs> Amazing. In it. This one has a different theme. It actually kind of feels different to the other one. Amazing. What a time to be alive. If only the bar was still that low. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As a game developer, I would love it if the bar was still that bad. <laughs> <laughs> it is amazing though, because like, you know, games back then were made with, you know, more primitive technology that was harder to work with, and yet almost all of them were made in like a year or less. And in some cases, like you see that and you think, okay, that makes sense. But a lot of the others are like, how the fuck was this done so quickly? Like Bullfrog's games, they just churned out like two 90% games a year yeah. for like seven years straight. <laughs> and I'm just like, how? And none of them are in the same genre. is that possible? <laughs> I know. And like, that's not, even with Unity uh, and all these tool sets and all this middleware and stuff, making stuff in different genres and theories easier because it's all versatile and, and, and all of that. You don't have to build a new engine to build a new kind of game. Uh, even now, that seems impossible for anything short of a team of a thousand people. <laughs> yeah, they did it back then. I don't know how. A lot of late nights and pizza, I guess. Maybe maybe there's a bit of rose tinting going on where if we played like Magic Carpet today, maybe it wouldn't feel like a full game in the way that we sort of think of them today. Mm. Like maybe it would feel a bit limited. But back then, that was 
seemed incredible. Is that all the time we have? Yep, pretty much. That's all the time we have. Uh, if you'd like to send us a question, you can do so at questions at crankcrowbar.com. You can tweet us at crankcrowbar. All these recordings are uploaded as videos to YouTube where you can find other stuff by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash crowbar. Thanks as always to our Patreon backers. You can back us too at patreon.com slash crowbar, or you can join our lovely Discord community, the link for which is on our website, crowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Tom Francis. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>